Hey guys, welcome to Midcast, the official podcast of the Midcast News. We're an independent online news service dedicated to watchdog journalism that holds the powerful to account, exposing the money interests that influence policies right here at home and abroad, while we go behind the headlines to bring you stories the corporate media doesn't want you to hear. I'm your host, Manar Mohawish, founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News. And I'm your co-host, Whitney Webb, and together we will not only discuss and analyze the biggest stories that the government and their media lapdogs want swept under the rug, but also interview dissenting voices, independent researchers, and journalists who the establishment would rather silence. One such voice is independent journalist, documentary filmmaker, and host of The Empire Files, Abby Martin. Earlier this month, Martin announced that she is partnering up with CARE to sue the state of Georgia in a free speech lawsuit after she was banned from delivering a keynote address at Georgia Southern University last month. She had been banned after refusing to sign an oath to the apartheid state of Israel under Georgia's new anti-BDS law. Over the past six years, 28 states, including Georgia, have adopted anti-boycott laws. The majority of states have already mandated loyalty pledges to Israel as a means of outlying dissent. The nonviolent boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement is the latest target of the pro-Israel lobby, which is now trying to make merely supporting that movement illegal. It's no wonder, since BDS is possibly the most powerful nonviolent tool that places economic pressure on Israel to follow international law and end its apartheid system and military occupation of Palestine. In their lawsuit, CARE Legal Defense Fund senior litigation attorney Ghadir Abbas said there is no place where free speech is more important than on campus. And this attempt to suppress Abby's views, denying students, academics, and others from hearing her lecture is as brazen as it is illegal. Nomara Verhaden Hilliard, executive director of the Partnership for the Civil Justice Fund, added, In 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was criminalized for leading a boycott against Jim Crow apartheid in Alabama. Southern states enforced anti-boycott uh, laws to punish and derail civil rights organizing. The Supreme Court eventually made clear that peaceful boycotts are a protected form of political speech and expression. Now, Abby Martin is an outspoken critic of Israeli apartheid, colonialism, and occupation of Palestine. She recently highlighted Israel's ongoing aggression and human rights abuses against Palestinians in Gaza in her latest documentary, Gaza Fights for Freedom. She joins us now to discuss this and more. Abby, thank you so much for joining us. A lot long ago, you announced your lawsuit against the state of Georgia. Tell us more about it and what precedent does this all set for our First Amendment rights? Absolutely. Um, I decided to file a lawsuit against the state of Georgia um, because of several things. I mean, I am a lifelong activist for Palestinian rights. Um, I was frankly shocked when I was given said loyalty pledge and given this contract uh, simply for having assigned a keynote speech at Georgia Southern University. It's a public institution. As was mentioned in the intro, there are 28 states. I mean, this is the vast majority of states in the U.S. here that have passed anti-BDS measures for independent contractors, either through governors, executive orders, or legislative bodies that have passed these because of grandstanding about um, the threat of anti-Semitism on college campuses, etc., and so when I was given this contract, I was appalled. Um, I had never really connected the two that simply speaking at a university campus would incite the pledge. Um, of course, I've heard about these contracts. I've covered them several times. I spoke about them at length in my tour for Gaza Fights for Freedom that Mike and I did across North America. 
But to be given it myself was something entirely different. And, you know, reading this pledge and, of course, saying I could not sign this um, for several reasons. I mean, one is that even if I wasn't an activist for Palestinian rights, I feel like it would be such an egregious violation of my constitutional liberties. Um, and someone actually did sue, I want to say Kansas, and the judge actually deemed that, um, you know, the, these laws have been challenged in several states. Um, I, I don't I, either Kansas or Arkansas. The judge said that political speech and boycotts um, boycotts were not protected political speech. And this guy was suing just because he said this is crazy. I mean, I can't sign this, and he had really no interest in boycotting Israel. So it shows you that this is an extremely offensive thing to the core of the U.S. Constitution, of our civil liberties, of our free speech rights, and of course, as an activist against racism and injustice. And as someone who deeply covers uh, Israeli apartheid, the human rights atrocities and crimes ongoing in this apartheid state, um, especially with my latest film, Gaza Fights for Freedom, which deeply documents uh, the war crimes, the violations of the Geneva Conventions. I mean, how could I comply with such a contract? Would I have to delete my film? Would I have to go back the last 10 years and remove all interviews that I've ever done advocating for BDS? I mean, it's a completely absurd notion to even comply in the first place. So reading this reading this um, language and understanding what a violation it was of my free speech rights, not only the right to speak freely about these issues on allegedly the bastion of free speech nationwide, which are college campuses, but also the right um, of politically participating in, in boycotts, which, as you mentioned, is such a fundamental asset to push change on a grassroots level um, here in the U.S. and abroad, looking at the Montgomery bus boycotts, the civil rights movement, uh, the fact that the Supreme Court protected this right in the Constitution. I went to the Supreme Court, and they deemed in the early 80s that um, political boycotts were a protected form of free speech. And you look at apartheid South Africa, this is how apartheid fell, is this mounting pressure of international boycotts across the world. And so that's why I decided to file the lawsuit, because it's not about me. I'm using my voice and my case as a vehicle to hopefully challenge this law, overturn this law that is blatantly and flagrantly unconstitutional, and also inspire others to stand up and challenge these laws across the U.S., because as my lawyers mentioned this is the forefront this is the front line of the civil rights issue this decade so do you think even if these anti-boycott laws are thrown out by the courts do you think that will dampen efforts by israel's government and the pro-israel lobby in the u.s to criminalize criticism of israeli government policy um I think that it's gonna i think it's definitely affecting them already i mean we just saw netanyahu uh, speak out. You know, this was two days after I filed my lawsuit, um, and this was also a day I think after the UN released that hundred-plus list of companies that were illegally profiting off the colonization of the West Bank. And you saw Netanyahu um, and the Ministry of Strategic Affairs basically tweet out bragging rights that they had lobbied state legislatures to pass these laws forbidding the boycott of Israel. I mean, it was actually really shocking of an admission. Yeah. Here we are. You know, being told ad nauseum by the corporate media that Russia is interfering egregiously in our democratic rights and our elections. And then you have a foreign government literally tweeting, saying, whoever boycotts us will be boycotted 
In recent years, we've promoted these laws in the U.S., which determine that strong action is to be taken against whoever tries to boycott Israel. I mean, this is a foreign country threatening economic consequences to dictate the constitutional rights of Americans. So I think that they're going to get increasingly desperate. Um, I don't think they're going to stop. I think that they're going to utilize the BDS movement as they have been to continue to weaponize anti-Semitism and can continue to focus and narrow all of the efforts and blame on pro-Palestine activism. And of course, at the same time, letting actual Nazism and fascism you know, rise and proliferate around the world. But as long as you have someone like a Trump in the White House protecting Israel, providing cover for this absurd conflation, I unfortunately see it just getting worse. But that is why we have to bring this fight to the courts, because I do have faith in our court system and the judges. Of course, I don't have faith in politicians. They are completely obsessed with their political capital. God knows the efforts that have been going on on the ground that Netanyahu's boasting about that has uh, passed this near unanimously across the country. And of course, we know on a federal level as well, this was one of the first bipartisan pieces of legislation that was pushed earlier last year during the government shutdown. Like that shows you the fucking warp priorities of this government. Um, but as long as Trump is sitting in the White House, the quote unquote staunchest ally that Israel has ever seen, I fear that we're going to see a lot more dangerous things to come. Um, but that is why we have to bring this to the courts. We have to set a precedent and we have to push uh, to allow judges to deem these unconstitutional because many of them have. The vast majority of judges have deemed them unlawful once they are presented with the case. And I find that extraordinarily um, wonderful and, and a huge source of optimism moving forward outside of kind of the, the periphery of, of this political, you know, bipartisan consensus on the Israel issue. So, Abby, on that point, you know, as we've seen these anti-boycott uh, laws emerge, um, there has also been this parallel movement that has also tried to prevent criticism of the pro-Israel lobby in U.S. politics, such as the now well-known attacks on Congresswoman Ilhan Omar for calling out APEC's influence, you know, financial influence in U.S. electoral politics, you know, framing her and painting her as this, you know, Jew-hating, anti-Semitic, uh, you know, monster. Um, in your view, Abby, how important have these pro-Israel lobby groups been in promoting these anti-boycott laws? And why do you think this parallel movement of attacking people for criticism of the Israel lobby has become so much more intense since, or intense since these laws uh, were first passed? I think that Israel has kind of made... Um an alliance with white supremacism and neo-Nazism, where they, they basically accepted that people like Trump, administrations like Trump, and essentially the foundation of the U.S. empire, which is rooted in the same kind of violent ethnic, you know, ethnic cleansing and, and settler colonialism, that that's okay. As long as you are pushing, and of course anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are two sides of the same coin, but according to Israel... It's okay to be Islamophobic. It's great, actually, to be um, bigoted against Muslims and to push that, if, even if it's rooted in Nazism, right? Even if it's rooted in white supremacism, as long as Israel is protected and promoted. And I think that kind of deal with the devil has um, played out in, in many ways, especially with APAC, I mean, which is one of the strongest lobbies 
in the U.S., um, if not the strongest lobby in the U.S. It is a main tool of Israeli policy being pushed in the U.S. It's never been forced to file or register as a foreign agent. <laughs> you know, here you have Russia today being like forced to register as a foreign agent. The U.S. law requires this, right? APAC is somehow um, allowed to just run amok to pressure all these politicians, to bribe politicians, to uh, undermine politicians, to label people like Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, uh, terrorist sympathizers. It is absolutely outlandish what APAC has done to damage uh, free speech, to promote these kind of laws. And we, of course we know that they're at the forefront of these. I mean, people probably have heard of the, the lobby, that documentary that Al Jazeera did this deep un uh, undercover investigation where they found numerous lobby front groups uh, literally spying on academics and activists and journalists. I mean, this is what they're using their money to do, is undermine these efforts to discuss the crimes and atrocities of, uh, atrocities of Israel, to mount this grassroots, grassroots pressure, uh, can't talk, to mount this grassroots pressure against Israel. Um, and what they've done to Elon Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who I think are very brave, incredible women of color, Rashida, of course, being a Palestinian, Elon Omar, um, the first sitting Muslim wearing hijab in Congress. Absolutely amazing that they have not backed down from their critiques of Israel. They are, you know, they're co-sponsoring Betty McCollum's bill, um, who is also a white woman, and she's been vociferously mm -hmm. attacked by APAC as well. She was accused of basically, um, she was basically conflated with ISIS from like an APAC ad that they posted on Facebook posting pictures of McCollum, Omar, and Talib saying, you know, we need to protect our Israel allies from the threats that they face in Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, and then they're like, and also in the in the bowels of U.S. Congress, like, even more sinister, and like, wow. literally showing ISIS photos, and McCollum is just like, look, this is a hate group, like, straight up, this is a hate group, they're weaponizing anti-Semitism, this is incitement, actually, to violence, and we saw, of course, Trump inciting violence against Elon Omar. Um, for simply saying it's all about the Benjamins. What the fuck do you think lobbying is? That is what, it's all about money, right? I mean, can you imagine any other attacks being levied against Congress people who are just talking about the power and influence of lobbying organizations that have overtaken the entire institution of our government? So I think that, you know, hypocrisy is too light of a word to really describe uh, the Orwellian nature and situation that we have, where APAC um, has essentially stifled all criticisms of Israel, conflated it and weaponized it with bigotry um, to, to essentially just call anyone bigots and terrorist sympathizers who are criticizing um, their policies. And it needs to stop. It needs to stop. But um, but yeah, the lobby is something that is that is hugely detrimental. And again, going back to the Trump administration, I mean, the measures that he's taken to embolden Israel and, and push these policies of colonization forward are quite troubling. Well, when it comes to APAC, you know, the, the mask recently especially has really come off. Um, you know, for a long time they've been able to avoid having to register under FAR as a foreign agent, claiming that, you know, they're this bipartisan group that just wants to strengthen the bond between U.S. and Israel. But just recently, they were talking about how they how APAC uh, was talking about how they need to stop Sanders, Bernie Sanders, at all costs, which is like openly political and political, I would say, political interference, um, you know, in the Democratic primaries by a group that is closely linked to a foreign government, like you were saying. So, you know, it, it's just gotten, you know, really out of control. Um, 
But beyond that, you know, just talking, going back to this general talk about, um, you know, outlawing criticism of, of, you know, Israel's government in the U.S., do you think that push um, and, and it, it, how it's increased uh, lately, uh, is, do you think that's at all related to the increasingly extreme policies that Netanyahu has linked to his re-election bid in Israel, like his vow to annex most, if not all, of the West Bank if re-elected? Yeah, I mean, there was a report done, I forget by what think tank, um, but the criminalization of pro-Palestine activism really grew and increased. I think the 2014 massacre was like a huge turning point, um, especially on college campuses. Obviously, we know that as the bloodletting of the 2,200 Palestinians, 500 dead, the vast majority non-combatants. I think because people were able to share these images on social media, they, they broke through this kind of tightly controlled narrative, and it really caused an uproar that translated into real action on the ground um, with SJP groups, uh, BDS divestment campaigns across the country, and of course worldwide as well. And since then, we've really seen this crackdown, um, a concerted effort on a state and federal level to quell dissent and grassroots pressure against Israel. And that's when you saw a lot of these anti-BDS measures being enacted and passed um, legislatively. But um, but yeah, I think that also, I mean, since then, I feel like it's just been ramped up more and more. Um, we had the 2014 massacre, and then we had, you know, kind of the open declarations as Netanyahu becomes increasingly and more brazen in his fascism um, and admit all like that he wants to just, you know, annex the entire West Bank with really no remorse. Um, the recent election being a complete farce, I mean, his indictment, um, the partnership with Trump. So all of these things, the Great March of Return, which we can get into, I think have just increased uh, the motivation and, and really inspired people worldwide to keep acting on this issue and to um, continue the pressure. And so it really, I feel like that was a turning point in the sand. It hasn't stopped and they've just shown their hand and revealed uh, their agenda way too much, especially under Trump. Um, but, but again, I mean, because of this hyper-focus on criminalizing and combating Palestine activism and BDS, there's virtually no effort spent to rooting out the actual danger of actual Nazism and white supremacism in this country. And that's what I find so fascinating about this whole thing. It's like, these lobbying groups, whether it's the Zionist Organization of America, the Simon Weisenthal Center, or APAC, they literally will blame Palestinians and pro-Palestine activists whenever there's like a white supremacist attack. That in their manifestos, they will openly declare like anti-Semitic Nazi beliefs. But because Trump kind of embodies those beliefs as well and is giving cover for them on a federal level, they just don't care. Because it really is all about protecting Israel at all costs. They don't actually care about rooting out the danger that, that really is posed to Jewish people worldwide, which again goes back to Nazism, which includes Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about um, the elections that are taking place right now with all the candidates and their talking points. Um, you know, when it comes to foreign policy, it seems like each candidate, especially on the Democratic side, they often take the side of the State Department and U.S. militarism, with the exception of some talking points made by Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, excuse me. Who do you think, in your opinion, um, stands 
more with human rights when it comes to Palestine and Israel out of all the Democratic candidates? Well, I, of course, I would say Bernie Sanders is the best one. He's not good. He's still an imperialist and he's still pro-Israel, right? But I think that when you look at what he is willing to say, it does go leaps and bounds farther than any other political candidate. I mean, and that that is absolutely conclusive. And I've studied his policies. I, I put together a big thread on kind of all of these Democratic contenders, and I think it's safe to kind of call Netanyahu a racist and it's safe to call him right wing and it's safe to criticize his egregious policies because they are insane, right? I mean, to openly declare the annexation of the West Bank, to say settlements aren't illegal and, and just, again, the partnership with Trump, it's, it's become easier. The mask is lifted. And so you have people from Elizabeth Warren to Pete Buttigieg to, you know, Cory Booker, who said that he would cut off his right hand than to, than he would rather cut off his right hand than to betray Israel, and that him and the APAC president text like teens. Um, but other than that, you see them criticizing Netanyahu, right? Because it's easy. But Bernie Sanders, at least, has gone out there, you know, declared that he is part of the Jewish movement against the occupation. He has articulated at least what he would want as his two-state solution, which is actually what a lot of Palestinians have talked about as, as a negotiating tool, which is withdrawing settlements in the West Bank to the 1967 borders, um, of course, an unequivocal end to the military occupation and the end of the medieval siege of Gaza. And I think that that is a pretty radical stance. Um, you look at Hamas's new charter, they have said that that was a negotiating tool that they would be willing to discuss, which is the withdrawing of settlements of the 1967 borders. Um, so I think that the fact that that he's gone as far as saying that that it's a necessity is something that is pretty monumental. Um, and and I think it's worth mentioning that just in 2016, Bernie Sanders was really bad on this issue. Um, during the debates with Hillary Clinton, he could barely muster the words disproportionality when he was talking about the 2014 massacre. And of course, Hillary Clinton was a joke. She was just a staunch defender of anything Israel did. But but I think that's a testament to how much the movement has moved Bernie to the left. And that's why I um, feel like Bernie is the best chance to move policy on this issue because he listens to the movement. He listens to the grassroots and he's, and he's able to be bent um, to the will of whatever the masses say. Um, because this issue, I think, is exemplary of, of that fact, is that in 2016 he was poor, he wasn't going nearly as far um, as he is now, and just a couple years later, the fact that he's saying, you know, settlements need to end, the occupation is criminal, it needs to end, and we need to withdraw settlements um, for the last 40 to 50 years is a pretty strong statement. So that that's inspiring to me, and of course I'm inspired by not only him, I, I think that it's wrong to place all hope in a candidate, and especially investing in the electoral arena, we know how well that goes, but the millions of people that are behind Bernie, I've met tons of people in the Bernie Sanders movement who are really invested in foreign policy, they are staunch anti-imperialists, they really care about Palestinian rights, and I think they too see that there's kind of this hopeful nature of of the masses pushing this kind of radical agenda that we could possibly really curtail Israel in a way that's never really been seen before to le leverage aid, especially to do these things. Um, everyone else is frankly a joke. I mean, and I can go through some of their policies of why it's it's a complete farce and they just 
have a mealy mouth, generic as hell response that um, really means nothing when you look beyond the rhetoric. Well, one recent example of that, that I think it was just like a day or two ago, was uh, Amy Klobuchar. And she said the reason she couldn't name the president of Mexico was because she can name all the members of the Neset or the number of people in Israel's Neset. Yeah, the Knesset. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. She, she's so stupid, right? She's sitting on like an immigration policy um, board or whatever the hell she is. She's running against Trump's border policy. She's claimed to be this like foreign policy expert touted by the New York Times as some sort of like sage on foreign policy. It was unbelievable, that interview with Telemundo, where they were like, do you know anything about the Mexican president? She was like, I know that he's the president of Mexico. And they were like, but do you know his name? Like, do you know any party? Do you know the policies? Do you know anything, Amy? And she was so dumbfounded and so dumb. In general, I was mortified for her. I was like, holy moly, like this woman is a joke. And then at the debate, the Telemundo moderator was like, okay, you know, why didn't you know this? And she was like, well, what is this, Jeopardy? She's like, I can name that there's 120 members of the Israeli Knesset. And it's like, I'm sorry, what? What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah, apparently if you're president, you only need to know about Israel's political establishment and no other country. That's almost what that implies. That sums up all U.S. politicians, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> like a wink and a nod to like eight like I, what was that that was mind-blowing like that was seriously one of the most awkward things i've ever seen in my her life. whole candidacy is really awkward i think a couple months ago she just went on this random spiel about how she accidentally murdered a duck one time and then <laughs> and then before that she got media coverage because she like talked about how she forgot a fork or something and had to eat her food with a comb so like that's her candidacy uh, oh. <laughs> Oh, Imagine how us yeah. Minnesotans feel having to represent us. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, anyway, moving on to a, a different topic. Uh, last year, Abby, you released this amazing and incredibly moving documentary on the Gaza uh, Great March of Return entitled Gaza Fights for Freedom. How has that documentary been received since you released it? And if you were to add anything to it now, what would you add and why? Oh, great. Uh, great question. Because <laughs> I love talking about the documentary. And it also just goes... Uh, hand in hand with just this whole conversation because I think the Great Great March of Return really embodies uh, the peak of Israeli war crimes. You know, human rights uh, violations that are so blatant. Uh, there, it, it is so beyond debate what is going on because the Great March of Return was really kind of an unprecedented action um, that we have never seen before in Palestinian society. Tens of thousands of Palestinians from all stripes of Palestinian society. Uh, of course, you could argue like iterations of the Intifada were largely, you know, nonviolent. Um, but, but this was kind of a different thing. You know, this was out of the desperation um, in Gaza right now and out of the situation where we have 2.2 million people, 75% of them refugees, literally without water, without electricity, uh, without medical attention, without basic freedom and human mobility. Um, they, there was such a humanitarian crisis growing and fomenting that um, that they joined together activists, artists, journalists, um, all stripes of Palestinian society, including all political parties. A lot of people think there's this like monolithic demographic of Hamas reigns everything. And you know, there's there's a huge communist faction in Gaza. Um, there's uh, there's parties that are more conservative than Hamas. I mean, there, there's a lot going on. Um, it's quite uh 
it's quite interesting, actually, when you look beyond just what the mainstream media says. It's it's kind of similar to American society. You know, it's a, it's a lot of different people doing a lot of different things, and all of them joined together for this common goal um, in 2018. And they all came together, tens of thousands of them, and with bared chests and flags, and went toward this quote-unquote border fence. It's not a border fence as we know. That's what Israel likes to paint it to pretend like there's another state that they're just, they have to take all these crazy actions against because they want to invade their country when really it's a partition, a militarized partition blocking Palestinians from essentially accessing the lands that they were ethnically cleansed from. Um, and so that's that's what it really is. And there's a no-go zone where there um, there's a shoot-to-kill order. This has actually been in place since the Nakba when Gaza became kind of a surplus of refugees in the beginning, um, when Sterot, which is a lot of people who live in Gaza were from the village of Sterot, they were ethnically cleansed, a lot of them got sent to Gaza, and there was a shoot-to-kill order back then for quote-unquote infiltrators. So this shows you that the policy has always been in place, but they've used Hamas as a cover so then they can just say, oh, well, they're terrorists, and that's why they need to kill them now. But they've always killed them, and they've always had that order there. Um, so Ahmed Abu Artema is an incredible journalist, a young man who um, essentially was the lead organizer for this action. And when you hear him talk about it, it's really touching because he talks about how the initial plan was to make it akin to like an Occupy Wall Street, to pitch tents in the open land right across the um, quote unquote you know border fence and to just draw attention from the international community to their struggle as refugees to show the world that, hey, we're still refugees 70 years later. And um, and at 9 in the morning, that first day that they came out there, and a lot of these contingents were, like, female, too, which I, I really loved that the film really leading huge swaths of this march and actions. And, of course, Razan Al-Najjar, the first female medic at the march who was slaughtered by Israeli forces, she was an incredible inspiration, a hero for the world. Um, but that's another kind of myth that we try to debunk is that, you know, men control everything and women have no place. And, and that's really completely a uh, farce. And it's, it's, it, also one of the videographers was a woman, Asma Tia Hamad, who risked her life every Friday, was out there with Maz Maza, the other incredible cinematic videographer, um, to show us what it's really like in the middle of, of what's going on. Um, but at nine in the morning that first day, Israeli snipers started gunning them down like target practice. Um, there was a wide view of the demonstrations. They were sitting perched on top of uh, mounds of dirt and with a wide scope. I mean, and they were literally just going every 10 minutes and picking off another person. Um, the first day, uh, several dozen people were murdered. Several hundred were shot and wounded. And this this just started to happen every Friday. And the Palestinians didn't stop coming. Um, but one of the medics in the film, and we interview several Victims, of course, uh, medics, journalists, Razan's family to really paint um, and illustrate, you know, who they were targeting and why, because they say they're only targeting people who are actively engaged in violence. That couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and, and especially because the U.N. report, which we center the film around, documents what these people were doing when they were shot and killed, um, standing there on their cell phone, filming the protests, hiding behind a bin, literally doing nothing. This includes children medics, journalists, and disabled people. These are all protected categories under the Geneva Conventions that you cannot kill, even if there is an active battle. <laughs> That's what's so crazy about it. It's like 
let's say Hamas was there shooting in an actively engaged like army, all of these crimes would still be um, egregious violations of international law. And the fact that there was no um, weapons and no quote unquote army, no battle, as they say, makes it so much more undeniable and atrocious what was happening on that day. Um, and even one of the medics that we interview, Mechded, he talks about how the first six weeks of the protests, they didn't target the medics. Um, and then after six weeks, they started just shooting and killing all the medics. And they talk about, you know, what's, what does that really show you? Like, what message were they sending? They were trying to scare the hell out of everyone and saying, well, we're just going to kill anyone and you have no hope to be saved at all. Um, and I think that it also just shows you that they were getting orders from the top down. And, and we've gotten this confirmed several times. Israeli generals have kind of bragged about how they, you know, they go through several levels of approval before they're able to kill people. And they use it as a as a way to explain like, oh, no, we have to make sure that these people are like, you know, a threat before we get the authorization to kill. And really, they're just like, OK, like we're going to kill these medics now. And they just like give an order to the to the people behind the sniper rifles and they just start killing the medics and um and as we show in the film there's that one harrowing example of of it finally turns around behind the snipers themselves and shows what their viewpoint is and that's kind of a gleeful um joyous execution of a child who is literally doing nothing like running up to the fence with a flag and they just execute him um, and they're all shouting and laughing and people are horrified when they see this and they're like, oh my God, how did you get this footage? And it's like, well, they released this footage in a group chat on Facebook. God knows how many other videos there are circulating amongst themselves to brag about the kills that they make. This is the foundation of Israeli society. This is the barbarism and the dehumanization that is necessary in order to carry out a colonial apartheid state that is committing an ongoing massacre you see this reflected in polls across israeli society like um 90 of israelis agree with the open fire policy you have people in steroid that go and watch cinematically the bombing of gaza and, and eat popcorn and drink beer i mean this is this is what israel is i know it's hard to hear for some people but like this is the truth and so, yeah, that's not an aberration. It's not an abnormality. And it's not just a couple bad apples. This is just what the policy is. And we try to show that. And we try to elucidate the truth. And we don't tiptoe around these both sides nonsense. There's one side, um, which is, there's the both sides is shown in the film. It's the Israeli propaganda campaign and machinery that's very slick and well-funded. And it's the Palestinian victims who are articulating what's happening to them. That's the two sides. It's pretty incredible that you were able to enter Gaza in the first place and capture this kind of imagery, you know, to capture the reality of this Goliath, um, David versus Goliath scenario, and to give a voice to the people there who have been silenced by the mainstream corporate media. And, you know, I really just you know want to add to your mention about Palestinian women being right there leading the resistance against occupation Palestinian women are constantly um at, you know they're constantly being silenced by the media and it's because their voice is so strong they are incredibly strong um against 
this system of injustice. And I, you know, I think a lot of people that will watch your film will just be so moved uh, to see that these women are are leading these efforts. And, um, you know, going on, uh, you know, on on this note, uh, Abby, we just have like three minutes left. This is my last question for you. Uh, but right after the official release of the so-called deal of the century, Israel not only flooded and destroyed Gazan crops, but also banned all agricultural exports from the occupied West Bank to the outside world in what appears to be a de facto blockade of the West Bank. Um, based on your experience in Palestine, do you think this continued tightening of collective punishment is related to efforts to force Palestinians to accept uh, the new Trump administration's peace deal, so-called peace deal? Um, before I say that, I just wanted to say that I actually was banned from Gaza. When I was in the West Bank, I had all the proper credentials and paperwork filled out to get into Gaza, and Netanyahu's office, um, Ron Paz, uh, his like assistant, said I was a propagandist and not a journalist, and also that he, he called me an Iranian agent. Um, and I was really scared to be called an Iranian agent, like within, you know, within the West Bank and traveling through 48. And I was like, okay, this is like actually really crazy that they're, that they now, now yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, in the target here. So it's I, incitement. I, it's incitement. It is. No, it's crazy. And so I, um, I ended up working with a team of journalists there and we ended up directing the interviews and the footage and stuff like that. I mean, it, it's really sad because I would have loved to be there and meet my brothers and sisters and work with them. But I think that there is something really special to the fact that Palestinians did everything there and we just simply edited the footage and I just kind of tied it together with my narration and, and I didn't want to be in it, you know, and, and, I, and I think it's really beautiful how it turned out. Um, but anyway, so that's what happened. We even had to redact. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. We had to redact our producer's name because he was actually scared um, that he would be penalized and punished by Israel and never be allowed to leave Gaza. So we had to, it's just really sad, um, the risks that these people put themselves through just to get this kind of story out there. The so-called deal of the century, the peace deal led by um, led by Jared Kushner, who is personally profiting off of the illegal settlement process, and we're told that he's the arbiter of peace, and really what the peace deal does is permanently um, cement the annexation, right, and the apartheid state. It even goes as far as, like, vetoing the right to return and essentially just declaring Palestinian voices um, – absent and saying you will never you just have to shut up right you have to put up and shut up and just a permanent subjugation um of, of the entire peoples living there and i think that the collective punishment in gaza of course i mean of course it's a tool it's a weapon it's meant to um remove all hope from the equation it's meant for people to submit right and that's i feel like that's what it's always been designed to do and they've just been given kind of a gift where they've uh the hamas thing is just their cover to just be like okay everyone in gaza is a hamas target we can just kill maim starve out anyone there um because you know 15 years ago there was an election and and this happened it's like it's just the most disgusting and disgraceful policy i feel like really unmatched anywhere in the world like i, I don't really i can't compare this to anything that's going on, and I think that's what makes it so vicious, and why BDS even arose in the first place. Because it's like there's no governments even holding this kind of um, anomaly, like this anomaly of egregious international law violations, holding them to account. Um, but yeah, I think that the policy, uh, and Jared Kushner paints it as, oh, this is this is going to provide enormous profit. 
for Palestinians. We're finally giving them a chance to get out of their own way and to, you know, stop choosing misery and death over profits. And we're going to pave these roads so that they could work in like these Israeli factories. And it's just disgusting. It's disgusting that that's their that's that's how they paint them. Right. And and it's just it's just entrenched in bigotry and Islamophobia and just it's absolutely disgrace. But I think that it's never going to pass because you're not giving Palestinians a seat at the table or a voice at all. So how could it? I mean, even a boss who a lot of people are like, he's a total puppet. I mean, he would never agree to anything like this. So I think it's a joke. It's no, it's never going to leave like the cutting room floor. Um, and But yeah, the fact that they just use it as an excuse, like, okay, well, you guys passed up another chance to get a peace deal, so we're just going to like bomb you again or block off more ability to grow food or sever more water supply. I mean, that that's... They're going to do that, um, and they're going to use whatever excuse they can to do that. But I think Palestinians are going to stay strong, and they're never going to stop fighting and resisting because what is kind of illustrated in the um, Gaza Fights for Freedom is like the bravery and heroism from Palestinians that I, I've i never seen before. Um, it's something that is deeply inspiring and profound that um, – that they understand like what freedom means in their hearts and they'll do anything to risk their lives to access that. And it's just something that I feel like a lot of Americans, you know, from our privileged spaces, wherever we are, can't really fathom. And that's why it's necessary for us to step up and get out of these bubbles and fight because they're the ones taking the real bullets. And if we don't do everything that we can to um, put our bodies on the line and our jobs on the line and everything that we can do to fight back against this criminal government that is subsidizing this atro- this atrocious apartheid state and criminal occupation, then you're not doing enough. And that's not just, it just doesn't start and stop with Palestinians either. This is for all the oppressed people living under the boot of U.S. empire around the world. It is up to us. We need to resurrect an anti-war movement in this country, and we need to fight back um, because that's the only way these things are going to stop. You're absolutely right, and that's why uh, the best thing that we have, um, and you know, people around the world, whether they're Palestinians or people living under the boot of U.S. imperialism and militarism, or right here in the United States, who are just tired of these policies, you know, what we have left is our power, our voice, and that's why there is such a concerted effort to censor us, to silence us. Um, to prevent us from speaking up. I mean, just imagine if this conversation aired, um, you know, on CNN, if, um, you know, mass, the mass majority of Americans were, you know, were exposed to just, you know, one droplet of what was actually going on um, in Palestine, how they would, you know, they would change. They would be so enraged that um, the occupation of Palestine is really just a money-making machine for, uh, the 1%. Just imagine if people heard this conversation the main, in, in the mainstream media. I wanted to just add one thing to that point, that when people are polled, because of course they say BDS is this movement, they fallaciously declare that BDS is this movement to like eliminate the Jewish state and, and expel all Jews from Israel. It's like, it couldn't be further from the truth. What BDS right. is doing is showing that, you know, we want one state a one-state solution, democracy for all, one person, one vote. And when Americans are polled, and they're actually told that there is no two-state solution left, that the viability of a two-state solution is is no more, they actually do agree. Two out of three Americans agree that, okay, well, then we should have a one-state. 
And so I mean, once yeah. the rubric, it's, you know what I mean? Like everyone kind of agrees with that. Well, it, you know, it fits in with the ideals of, you know, a democracy where, you know, the, you know, the majority of people decide <laughs> the laws of the land and not just <laughs> one uh, minority or one religious group. It doesn't fit in with, you know, our American ideals. Um, but anyways, Abby, it was such a treat to have you on today. I mean, we could talk about this for like hours and hours. Um <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was such a it was, it was so awesome having you on um, but that's a wrap for today's Mintcast podcast um, this program is 100% listener supported and if and you can join the hundreds of financial supporters who make supporters who make this show possible by becoming a member on our Patreon page thank you so much we'll see you all next week thanks so much guys